Welcome to Didache, where we are studying to show ourselves approved, rightly dividing the word of truth so we can worship God in spirit and truth, deepening our knowledge of God, thereby enabling us to deepen our love for God. Here is your host, Justin Peters. Okay, dear ones, thank you for joining me for my second and final presentation. And in this presentation, I'm going to look at some more cars that inevitably come along the social justice train. Again, think, with the social justice coming in, that that engine comes in, it's bringing cars along with it. So in this presentation, we're going to look at the egalitarian car, the homosexual car, and then we'll conclude by the entitlement car, and the entitlement car does indeed lead us to a different gospel all together. Okay, so let us begin by defining these terms, egalitarianism and complementarianism. Egalitarianism, theologically speaking, there's a, a political definition of this, a political slash philosophical slash sociological definition of this term that actually does fit into kind of the more leftist um, political spectrum. But but for our purposes here, theologically speaking, the egalitarian view is that women can hold the same positions of leadership in both the home and in the church. Okay, In, in the Christian world, if you're egalitarian, that means that you believe that women can lead spiritually, be in positions of authority in both the home and the church just as much as can men. So in other words, they can be pastors, they can be elders, they can do all the things that men can do. That is opposed and in contradiction to complementarianism. The complementarian position holds that positions of spiritual leadership in both the home and the church are reserved solely for men. Okay, so a, a position of being an elder or a pastor, or shepherd, those terms are used interchangeably in the New Testament, by the way, but uh, an elder, a pastor, those positions are reserved solely for men. Women are not biblically permitted to serve as an elder, to serve as a pastor. Now, the complementarian position absolutely does hold that men and women are of equal value. Galatians 3.28 is very clear about this. There is now, therefore, neither there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for we are all one in Christ Jesus. Men, men and women are both created in the image of God. We are equally sinners. We are saved through the same gospel. We are indwelt by the same Holy Spirit. There is nothing that is any more inherently spiritual about a man as opposed to a woman. So we are on equal footing, absolutely equal footing before God in that regard. But God has designed it that the positions of leadership in the institutions that he created, the home and the church, are to be filled by men. Now, theologically conservative evangelicals, those with a high view of Scripture who hold to the inerrancy of Scripture, uh, have held that the complementarian position is the biblical position. Uh, this changed, at least with the United Methodist Church, in 1956. In 1956, the United Methodist Church uh, granted women full clergy rights. And this is a portrait of Maud Jensen. She was the first female uh, clergy member, who, first lady who had been granted full clergy rights 
uh, in the United Methodist Church. Now, the United Methodist Church had been allowing women to preach for over a hundred years before this, but to actually be granted full clergy rights with all the bells and whistles and and everything that goes along with that, uh, Ma Jensen was the first one in 1956. So um, that began the the doctrinal slide of the United Methodist Church. And now, when you look at the United Methodist Church, it is, for all intents and purposes, full blown apostate. Uh, John and Charles Wesley would not recognize the United Methodist Church today. And dear friends, please understand this. When when you look at any denomination, when a denomination begins to ordain women and put them in positions of leadership that the Bible reserves only for men, that begins the doctrinal slide. Okay, The, the camel's nose is under the tent. And error always begets more error, right? It spreads like gangrene. And left unchecked, uh, that error will eventually lead to full-blown theological liberalism, which is exactly where the majority of the United Methodist Church is today. But uh, Southern Baptist, and and I'm not Southern Baptist in full disclosure. A lot of people think I am. I, I used to be, but I haven't been. Uh, officially for, um, uh, I guess, about 11 years now. But uh, the Southern Baptist Convention has has always maintained that um, the complementarian position is the right position. And that has been the rule amongst theologically conservative evangelicals with a high view of Scripture. Now, that would not be true in the charismatic world. I mean, charismatics would say they have a high view of Scripture, but uh, uh, in the charismatic movement, women preach almost as much as men do, and it's very common to see women as pastors in the in the charismatic movement, charismatic churches. But uh, any time that this has been done, whether it's the United Methodist Church, uh, and we're going to see it in the charismatic churches as well, this will always directly lead into full-blown theological liberalism. And the tide has been turning in the Southern Baptist Convention. The Southern Baptist Convention, again, has been complementarian. Uh, really for its entire existence. But in in the last, especially in the last 10 years or so, that that slide away from complementarianism towards egalitarianism uh, has been ramping up. Now, while I'm thinking about that, let me, let me make this point. What you see in the social justice movement is that they will use the same lingo as conservatives. So they'll have the same lexicon, but they're using different dictionaries. Okay, they they will say, "Oh, we're we're conservative. We have a high view of scripture. Oh, we're complementarian, but we just believe that a woman can preach on Sunday as long as she has the pastor's permission." Then you're not complementarian. Okay, so watch that. Watch that in in every facet of the social justice movement and in, in all of its all of its tentacles. They use the same lexicon, they'll use the same lingo, the same terminology, but they import into that terminology very, very different definitions. Beth Moore threw a big rock in the evangelical pond in 2019 on Twitter. She was responding to a lady named Vicki Courtney who was preaching at a church on Mother's Day, and Beth Moore responded by saying, I'm doing Mother's Day too. Vicky, let's please don't tell anyone this. Ha ha, as she puts that on social media with all of her 
many, many, many thousands of followers. Well, this caused uh, this caused a lot of waves, and there was a lot of discussion, and there were some articles written by uh, some conservative theologians, Dr. Owen Strand among them, who was a speaker at this particular conference, and rightly pointed out that the, the not only is the office of pastor reserved for men biblically, but so is the function of preaching. Now, some have tried to wiggle out of the complementarian position by saying that well, it's okay for a woman to preach as long as she's not the pastor. That makes no sense. You cannot separate the function from the office. And I'm kind of surprised that this caused the brouhaha that it did because this was not at all the first time that Beth Moore had ever preached in a church corporate worship on a Sunday. It's It was not the first time. That's not something that she does regularly, but uh, from time to time, by her own admission, she does do it. So it wasn't, wasn't like this was a, a one-off, not by any stretch. Now, Beth Moore's excuse for doing this, well, it's Mother's Day. Well, it's Mother's Day. Mother's Day is a man-made holiday. There's nothing biblical about Mother's Day. That is a, a man-made holiday. It's a secular holiday. Uh, so it, it, you, it, it bears, so it has no bearing at all in God's economy and his truth, whether or not that Sunday is Mother's Day. It is the Lord's Day where we as believers gather corporately to worship God in spirit and in truth. And when a woman is filling the pulpit on a Sunday morning, God is not being worshiped either in spirit or in truth. And since then, Beth Moore has preached at other churches. She has preached even at Wheaton College and Truett Seminary. And this is a, a video uh, that was posted just very recently, within a, a couple of a week or two ago, for her preaching at Truett Seminary. And this is act, she's actually preaching at a preaching conference. Uh, there were people like Dean Todd Still and his wife Carolyn, like several members of your faculty and like the precious people that have opened up their arms to me and would dare to have me at a preacher's conference, my good friend. So if Beth Moore will accept an invitation to preach at a, at a preaching conference, then that obviously tells you she has no problem whatsoever with women preaching, whether it is in church or in a seminary. And um, shame on Truett Seminary for having her preach at a preaching conference. And aside from the egalitarian issue, honestly, Beth Moore is a whole other discussion, but Beth Moore's hermeneutics, some of the some of the interpretations that she comes up with in Scripture are just absolutely mind-blowing, bizarre, Looney Tunes. But anyway, back to the issue at hand. Um, the church that Rick Warren pastors, Saddleback Church, made big news earlier this year, back in May of 2021, in which they ordained three women as pastors, okay? And they actually are calling these three women pastors. This is a picture that you see. Of course, the three uh, lower circles there are the women who they are ordaining, and the higher circle there is, is Rick Warren himself. So this is, this is Rick Warren. This is the pastor of Saddleback Church, one of the flagship churches of the Southern Baptist Convention. This is the author of Purpose Driven Life, Purpose Driven Church. And so here you have uh, one of the largest churches in the SBC 
openly and flagrantly ordaining women as pastors. Now, there were a few in the SBC who spoke up about this or, or pushed back on it, but uh, nothing has been done and nothing will be done. The Saddleback Church should be kicked out of the Southern Baptist Convention, but no, um, it won't. Nothing to see here. Move along. The current president of the SBC is Ed Litton. Ed Litton pastors in Mobile, Alabama. And uh, Ed Litton is a serial plagiarist. I've done some videos on that on my YouTube channel. You can go to my YouTube channel and look at those. But he, others have as well. It's uh, exhaustively documented and proven. He is a serial plagiarist, has been plagiarizing sermons for years. And yet, not one of the presidents of any of the six Southern Baptist seminaries have said anything about it. Uh, one president, uh, Jason Allen, did say something about plagiarism in general, but none of the six presidents have called for his resignation, and his, he should resign. But um, at any rate, Ed Litton claims to be a complementarian. He claims to believe uh, the, the biblical view that the positions of leadership in both the home and the church are to be held by men, and only men can be pastors. But Ed Litton, on multiple occasions, has co-preached sermons on Sunday morning with his wife. And here is a just a picture of, of one of those occasions. Uh, and it's interesting, I've actually watched a couple of these, and on at least one of them, Ed Litton and his wife have both, they, they were both plagiarizing someone else in their sermon. This was a sermon that was lifted from Tim Keller. Uh, so you've got two issues going on here. Ed Litton uh, plagiarizing and his wife is plagiarizing. But Ed Litton claims to be a complementarian. And that goes back to what I was saying a minute ago. They're using the same lexicon, but a very different dictionary. So if it doesn't matter if the woman has permission from the senior pastor. That doesn't make it okay. It, it, sin is not okay as long as you have someone else's permission to do it. If, for example, when I was a seminary student, if I had gone to one of my buddies in the men's dorm and said, uh, one of my friends was a guy named Lance, I said, hey Lance, uh, I've got this paper coming up and I know you had this class last semester and you wrote a paper on the same subject. Can I copy your paper and put my name on it? If Lance had said, yeah, sure, man, that's okay. I understand you're in a bind and you got this deadline looming. It's okay. Here's my paper and I copy his paper but put my name on it. It doesn't make it okay. It's still sin. Russell Moore, Dr. Russell Moore, up until very recently was the president of the ERLC in the Southern Baptist Convention, the Evangelical Religious Liberties Commission. And uh, back in 2006, Russell Moore was very was a very staunch complementarian, and he warned about encroaching feminism, and even specifically called out Beth Moore for her preaching in churches on a Sunday, and he warned about that rightly so. But that was that was back in 2006, and Russell Moore has completely changed now, and and now Russell Moore and Beth Moore are big buddies, they're big friends, and Russell Moore is, is, is now a, a functional egalitarian because he, he praises Beth Moore, supports Beth Moore, and has famously said that if the SBC doesn't have a place for Beth Moore, then it doesn't have a place for a lot of us. Uh, Beth Moore has since left the SBC. And Beth Moore has now officially come out of the egalitarian closet. 
Uh, I want to show you this tweet from April the 7th, 2021. Beth Moore writes this. She says, Let me be blunt. When you functionally treat complementarianism, a doctrine of man, all caps, as if it belongs among the matters of first importance, yea, as a litmus test for where one stands on inerrancy and authority of Scripture, you are the ones who have misused Scripture. You went too far. Okay, a couple of points here. When, when, when Beth Moore refers to complementarianism as a doctrine of man, no, it's not a doctrine of man. The term was created by man. The term complementarianism was created by man in exactly the same way that the word trinity was created by man. You will not find the word trinity or trinitarian in the scriptures, but you will find the doctrine of the trinity very clearly taught, unmistakably taught. So, uh, yeah, the term complementarianism you won't find in scripture, but the doctrine, the theology, you absolutely will find in scripture. I want to show you this text, 1 Timothy 2, 12 through 14. Paul writes, But I do not allow a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. Okay, 1 Timothy 2, 12 is one of the, is one of the many key texts in dealing with complementarianism. In addition to the text in which he says that a, an elder, a pastor, must be the husband of one wife, obviously a woman cannot be the husband of one wife, despite all of the nonsense going on in our world where a man can identify as a woman and vice versa and all this kind of looney tune stuff. But back to the real world, back to reality, a, wife, a woman cannot be the husband of one wife. Okay, what I want to do now is look at some of the common arguments against complementarianism. And uh, we don't have time to do a deep dive on all these things, obviously. Uh, I just kind of want to give you a, a bird's eye view here, from, kind of from 30,000 feet, strong bird, but it, you know what I mean. So in dealing with 1 Timothy 2.12, for example, the way that egalitarians get around verses like 1 Timothy 2.12, they say, well, that was just relegated to the culture of the day. You know, that was a cultural norm, but our society has evolved now, you see. We're, we're so much more enlightened. And so things like what Paul said in 1 Timothy 2.12, that's not, that's not binding anymore today. But look at what Paul says here in the context. In verse 13, Paul continues and he says, For it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a wrongdoer. So Paul here is making a theological point. He is, he is tying this to the created order. So this is a theological point that is timeless. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't run out. There's never a time when it is not applicable. And if it cannot be any more clear, look at the very next verse. Verse 15, Paul says, But women will be preserved through childbirth, if they continue in faith, love, and sanctity with moderation. So uh, he, even create, he even connects this to childbearing. And though we are living about 2,000 years after this was written, last time I checked, it was still women who do most of the childbearing nowadays. All of it. So this is not cultural. This is theological and this is timeless. 
So one of the arrows in the egalitarian quiver is taken from Romans 16, verse 7. Now, those of you who are really observant, you might have noticed that up until this point, all of the scripture references that I've been citing, I have been citing from the New American Standard Bible. Well, this one I'm going to give to you in the NIV because it has to be in the NIV for this particular egalitarian argument to work. So let's look at this, Romans 16, verse 7. Paul writes, Greet Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews who have been in prison with me. They are outstanding among the apostles. And so the argument is, is that Paul greets Junia and calls her a, an apostle. And Junia was a woman, and so Paul is saying that Junia was an apostle. Well, a couple of points to be made about this. Number one, we don't even know for certain that Junia was a woman. Junia may have been a man. This is one of those names in Greek that could you could really go either way with it. It could be male, could be female. We have the same thing in English, don't we? We have a few names that uh, could go either way. Sam, for example. Sam is usually referring to a man, but it could be short for Samantha for a woman. Or um, what's another one? Um, Ashley. Most of the time, Ashley is a female name, but there are, I've met a few men who are named Ashley. That is a male name. Uh, Ashley was a, a, a soldier and gone with the wind, male. So anyway, it, can, it could go either way. And it's kind of the situation here with Junia. So let's just assume for uh, argument's sake that Junia was indeed a woman. So what do we do with this? Because Paul seems to call her an apostle except that he only seems to call her an apostle. I want to show you the same verse. We're going to go back to the New American Standard because the NIV is a bit paraphrastic. It's not a true literal word-for-word translation. It's more of a thought-for-thought, and that kind of gets into the realm of interpretation. So I like the the literal word-for-word translations, the ESV, New American Standard Bible, and I'm also going to show you this from the Legacy Standard Bible, which is uh, is going soon going to be my go-to translation once it's all out. Right now, it's just in the uh, available in the New Testament Psalm and Proverbs, waiting on the Old Testament to come out. So, very literal. But at any rate, let, let's go to this. Let me show you the same verse in the New American Standard and the Legacy Standard translation. In fact, I'll, I'll show you all three here. So, the pertinent parts in the New American Standard says that Andronicus and Junia are outstanding in the view of the apostles. ESV, they are well known to the apostles. Legacy Standard Bible, who are outstanding to the apostles. So you see, dear friends, all in the world this is saying is that Junia, whoever he or she was, was not an actual apostle, capital A, office of apostle. It says that Andronicus and Junia were notable. They were notable among the apostles. The apostles held them in high regard. Notice that they were fellow prisoners. So they were obviously faithful servants of Christ, willing to even be uh, imprisoned for their faith in Christ. So they were noted. They were well-respected. They were admired by the apostles. But Junia was not an apostle. Another egalitarian argument is based on Romans 16, verse 1. Uh, But again, you've got to look at it in the NIV. Paul writes, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church in Sincrea. So uh, Paul apparently refers to Phoebe, who is indeed a woman, as a deacon. So if a woman can be a deacon, then isn't that an argument for egalitarianism? Because a deacon is indeed an office in the church. Well, the NIV, again, NIV, this is, this is one of the weaknesses of the NIV. 
Let me show you the same verse in the New American Standard. Paul writes, I recommend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a servant of the church which is at Sincrea. So the word servant here in the Greek, diakonos for the singular, can refer to the office of being a deacon, in which case one holding that office would have to be the husband of one wife, temperate, hospitable, not addicted to wine, all those qualifications that Paul gives. However, it can also refer to a servant just in the general sense of the term. How do you know which is correct? You know which is correct by the context of the passage. And we have the same thing with uh, other terms in the New Testament as well. Uh, Apostle is actually also one of those terms. Apostle could refer to, in a very general sense, just someone who is sent out from a church in the the sense of an, an evangelist or missionary, I'm an evangelist, Uh, or it could refer to the office of being an apostle, and we denote that with a capital A. Elder is the same way, presbyteros. It could refer simply to an older man, an older man, or it could refer to the office of being an elder. So you have to look at the context in which it is used. And here, the the, (laughs) given the compendium of scripture, we're going to talk about in just a second, uh, the, the context argues overwhelmingly that Paul is simply referring to Phoebe as a servant in the church. Wonderful lady, sister in the Lord, as Paul says, absolutely, and she serves, but she doesn't hold the office of being a deacon. In fact, in John chapter 2, the wedding of Cana, the servants there are also referred to as deacons, if you want to render it that way, diakonos or diakonoi. Uh, but it simply means in that context a servant. Uh, the people filling the water pots are were obviously not deacons in the church, right? I mean, the church had not even yet been instituted at that point in time. So context, 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 and it really does help to have a literal word-for-word translation like the New American Standard, ESV, or the Legacy Standard Bible, which is coming out soon. Shameless plug. Another egalitarian argument is based upon Priscilla in Acts chapter 18. Priscilla and her husband Aquila, you might remember, took uh, Apollos, who is well-versed in Scripture, but they took him, inside, uh, took him aside and instructed him more fully in the doctrine of Christ. Uh, and some have said, oh, well, that's, that's proof right there that a man can teach a woman because Priscilla instructed Apollos. But friends, a couple of things. One, she was with her husband. Aquila. Number two, this was a private setting. Okay, This interaction with Apollos was private. This was not in corporate worship. You know, if, um, if, for example, my wife and I, Kathy, were to have a couple over for dinner or something like that, and, uh, and we, we began to talk theology, which we inevitably would, uh, and uh, the, the husband of the couple that we had over said something, and we get to talking about it that maybe it maybe is a little bit off theologically. I have no problem whatsoever with Kathy um, instructing um, said male guest in our home um, more more fully in the ways of Scripture and, and gently correcting his theology. I have absolutely no problem with that. In fact, we've had things like that you know in our lives many 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 times. So, um, and Kathy has, has helped me in some theological things as well over the years. So, you know, in a private setting, and my wife, by the way, knows her stuff. Uh, I have absolutely no problem with that. A private setting is perfectly fine. 
Uh, but it's a different matter when the corporate body of Christ has gathered together for worship on a Sunday. That's when those uh, instructions, that's when those male-female roles, those guidelines come into play. And also let's talk real quickly about the women at the tomb because I hear this one forwarded by egalitarians quite a bit that it was women who were the first heralds of the resurrection of Jesus. It was the women at the tomb and they went and they told the disciples about Jesus resurrected. And surely, since it was women who brought this good news, they were the first ones to report it, that surely that means that women can preach. Context, context, context. There's a big difference between heralding something or reporting something as opposed to exegeting scripture. Okay, the women at the tomb, A, they, they were not in church. They weren't, this was, this was, again, this was before the church was actually even created in the book of Acts. So they were not in church. This was not corporate worship. And the women went to report what they had seen per the instructions of the angels there. Uh, there's a big difference between reporting something and exegeting scripture. They were not preaching. They were simply reporting. Big, big difference. So dear ones, to sum all of this up, the egalitarian argument has no biblical merit. Fact of the matter is, when you look at the clear meaning of the text, an elder, a pastor, is to be the husband of one wife. A woman cannot do that. A woman is not allowed to usurp the authority over a man. She is not allowed to teach men in a corporate setting. Scripture is crystal clear about this, and there's just no amount of hermeneutical gymnastics that you can go through to, to, to get around the clear meaning of the text. None of the books of the Bible were written by a woman. None of the pastors of any of the churches that we read about in the New Testament were pastored by women. None of the apostles were women. Uh, the fact that Jesus chose 12 men as his disciples and apostles, that was not a flip of the coin, okay? That was deliberate. So you just cannot make an argument for egalitarianism. It is unbiblical. And as I said a bit ago, once you open that egalitarian door, once that camel's nose is under the tent, the rest of the camel is coming. And uh, it will not be long before you go into full-blown theological liberalism. It has happened every time. And it really is ironic when egalitarians accuse complementarians of of demeaning women, not not esteeming women, not honoring women, I would submit to you that it is those who advocate women to be in positions that God has simply not permitted them to be in. They are the ones who demean women. They are the ones who are not honoring women. Women have a very important role to play. They are to be, uh, look at Titus chapter 2, they are to be workers in the home. And that, you know, nowadays in our society, that's looked down upon. That's poo-pooed. No, that is, that is a very high calling. A, a, a man cannot do what God has designed a woman to do. A woman cannot do what God has designed a man to do. Equal value, but we do have different roles. And, and it, is, it is actually those who put women in places that God has simply not ordained for them to be in who, who are dishonoring women. And I'm not even saying that a woman cannot possess the gift of teaching because you know what? I believe that some women do possess the gift of teaching just like some men possess the gift of teaching. But read Titus chapter 2. A woman is to use that gift to teach other women. 
I have no problem whatsoever with a woman teaching uh, a group of women in a church, maybe a women's Bible study class or something like that. Read Titus chapter 2. The older women are to teach the younger women. I have no problem with that whatsoever. So yes, women can have the gift of teaching as long as they use that gift to teach other women as it relates to the gathering of the local church. Okay, all right, dear ones, let us turn our attention now to the next car on the social justice train, and that is the homosexual car. Okay, dear ones, the evangelical church traditionally has been very clear that the Bible defines homosexuality as aberrant and inherently sinful. There are six texts in the Bible that specifically deal with homosexuality, Genesis 19, Sodom and Gomorrah, Leviticus chapter 18, Leviticus chapter 20, and then you have in the New Testament Romans chapter 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and 1 Timothy chapter 1. These verses are clearly dealing with homosexuality, and they and they quite clearly and irrefutably uh, define the homosexuality as inherently sinful. But that has begun to change in the evangelical world. The winds of social justice have begun to kind of loosen the moorings there. And now there's you're seeing wiggle room uh, to varying degrees. Uh, the, the Revoice Conference made big news a couple of years ago uh, because it had some connection to the PCA. And, and the Revoice Conference is basically saying that uh, same-sex attraction is not sinful and you just don't act on it. But even that is is iffy at best because there's some really bad stuff going on with Revoice. But um, I know we're probably think I'm picking on the Southern Baptists here because I keep mentioning the SBC so much, but that is the largest Protestant denomination, and uh, so it, there's there's a lot of churches within that, and uh, we're we're seeing the SBC, which is again has has traditionally been very strong in its stance against homosexuality, rightly so, other issues notwithstanding. But um, I want to show you some clips from recent sermons preached by the former president of the SBC, J.D. Greer, and then the current president of the SBC, Ed Litton. And you're going to see obvious plagiarism here. That's not really the point. But I want you to listen to what these two men, who are both pastors and former and current president of the Southern Baptist Convention, have to say about homosexuality. And this, again, this is just to show you how, how things are changing. Convictions are waning. Which leads me to the second way that I see us going wrong here. Number two, we think it's the worst sin. Here's the second thing I think we do, we go wrong, and that is thinking homosexuality is the worst of all sins. Jen Wilkin, who's one of our favorite Bible teachers here and who's actually leading our women's conference, she said, she said we ought to whisper about what the Bible whispers about, and we ought to shout about what it shouts about. And the Bible appears more to whisper when it comes to sexual sin compared to its shouts about materialism and religious pride. In the Bible, sexual sin is whispered compared to the shout God makes about greed and judgmentalism. Dear friends, that is absolutely stunning. For two pastors, two presidents of the SBC to say that the Bible whispers about sexual sin, that's unbelievable to me. Let's look at just a few of the text. Colossians 3, 5 through 6. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to sexual immorality, impurity, passion, 
evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. Does that sound like a whisper to you? 1 Timothy 1, 9-10 Knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and godless, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for sexually immoral persons, for homosexuals, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers, and whatsoever else is contrary to sound teaching. Romans 13, 13. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy. Now I want to bring your attention to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18. Paul says, Flee sexual immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral man sins against his own body. When it comes to sexual immorality, Paul says, flee it. Flee it. Don't entertain it. Don't play with it. Don't dabble in it. Flee. Run. Because there's something unique about sexual sin. Unlike all other sins, sexual sin is something that is committed inside the body. And it, it leaves a stain. It leaves a wound that will never completely go away. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying it cannot be forgiven. It can be forgiven absolutely. Judicially speaking, it can be forgiven just as much and just as quickly as any other sin, judicially speaking. But it leaves a stain. It leaves a wound. Let's look at Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 6, 27 through 29. Can a man take fire in his bosom and his clothes not be burned? Or can a man walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So is the one who goes in to his neighbor's wife. Whoever touches her will not go unpunished. Look at verses 32 through 33. The one who commits adultery with a woman is lacking a heart of wisdom. He who would destroy his soul does it. Wounds and disgrace he will find and his reproach will not be blotted out. That is not to say that sexual sin cannot be forgiven. It can. But unlike other sins, sexual sin is committed inside the body. It is different. It leaves a wound. It leaves a stain. And the reproach of it will never be fully blotted out. There will always be a wound there. Dear friends, the Bible whispers about no sin. The Bible whispers about no sin, especially not sexual sin. Ask, ask the residents of Sodom and Gomorrah as fire and brimstone was raining down upon them from heaven. Ask them if that sounded like a whisper from God. The Bible whispers about no sin and especially not sexual sin for two pastors to say this is just unbelievable to me. And in watching this, it you really get the sense that these two men and others like them, J.D. Greer, Ed Litton, they have both been blown about to varying degrees by the winds of social justice and others like them. You really get the sense when you hear them address the issue of homosexuality that it's they can't get around the fact that the Bible clearly marks it out as sin. They, they can't get around that. But boy, you kind of get the sense that they sure wish that they could. 
it's they they their whole approach to this was one of uh, an apologetic nature, you know. Yeah, the the Bible says this, and but it's not any worse than any of the other sins, you know. It's 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 like they're apologizing for what the Bible clearly says. Stop apologizing for the Bible. Stop apologizing for God. If you feel like you have to apologize for God, then get out of the pulpit. Get out of the pulpit. In fact, let me say something here that I fear might get misunderstood, but I feel like it's important enough that even though I might get misunderstood, I'm going to say it anyway. In this sense, you can almost think of homosexuality as an affliction and not just a sinful choice. Because for most gay people, they feel like they didn't choose those desires. In fact, here's what I've learned after two decades of pastoring. Almost every person I've encountered, in the church at least, almost every person who struggles with the same-sex attraction is almost always dealing first and foremost with an unanswered prayer. You and I may think that homosexuality is a sinful choice, and I have actually said that from this pulpit. But many gay people that I know don't think they've ever chosen this desire. And in a real sense, they may be right. They are right. And it isn't because their desires are God-given. Their desires, like mine, are sin-given. Sin is an affront to a holy God. And every person I know who struggles with same-sex attraction has an unanswered prayer in their life. I'm talking about the people who struggle with it. And the unanswered prayer is, God, why didn't you take this away from me? I tell you, I am really uncomfortable with what you just heard there. To say that homosexuality is more like an affliction, as, as, as though it's something that you, you can't help and there's nothing you can do about it. My cerebral palsy is an affliction. Multiple sclerosis is an affliction. Cancer is an affliction. Muscular dystrophy is an affliction. Homosexuality is a choice. It is absolutely a choice. All sin is a choice that we make. They are sinful choices. And then to say that people who struggle with this, uh, you know, at the, at the end of it, that it's an unanswered prayer. And that, that is why they continue to struggle with this, because their, their prayers have not been answered. And I'll tell you what, friends, that comes perilously close, if not completely crossing the line of, of blaming God for this. Friends, we can blame no one for our sins but ourselves, much less God. I mean, that, that strongly insinuated that if God had just answered their prayers, then they wouldn't be struggling with this. I mean, don't, don't blame God for the sin of homosexuality or any other sin. That is completely antithetical to the gospel. And I'm going to come back to that point uh, as we close this video. Homosexuality does not send you to hell. You know how I know that? Because heterosexuality does not send you to heaven. Homosexuality does not send people to hell. How do I know that? Because heterosexuality doesn't send people to heaven. You know, when I first heard that clip, I had to rewind it to see if I actually heard what I thought I heard. Th that is just gobsmacking to me. Okay, so J.D. Greer preached this sermon in January of 2019. Ed Litton preached it. January of 2020, so a full calendar year later, and clearly it's Ed Litton who's plagiarizing J.D. Greer, and J.D. Greer plagiarized some other sources, but anyway, uh, th that statement, theologically speaking, is so mind-numbingly 
dumb. I mean, how can you make a statement like that? It's, they actually, uh, J.D. Greer got it from Tim Keller. Tim Keller is the one who first said it a number of years ago in, a, in an interview. But at any rate, that statement is so profoundly theologically bankrupt. It is hard for me to imagine how any pastor could have seen that statement. I, I mean, put myself in the shoes of Ed Litton. Ed Litton is plagiarizing a sermon from J.D. Greer, preached a year ago. And, he, you know, at least you've got to, even though you didn't write it, you've got to go over your notes and kind of look at it so at least you're kind of somewhat familiar with the material before you, you know, step up onto the platform and deliver it. And by the way, what Ed Litton is doing is not preaching, it's acting. But I digress. But how is it? how is it for Ed Litton that he could have looked over these notes from J.D. Greer and seen that statement and not thought, now, wait a minute. Is that right? Something about that doesn't seem right. Is, is, that, is that right? That's not, That statement was so profoundly unbiblical, so dumb. No, heterosexuality doesn't send you to heaven, but there's nothing inherently sinful about being heterosexual. That's God's design from literally day one. That's God's design there's nothing inherently sinful about it. There is something inherently sinful about homosexuality. It's not sinful for a young, let's for for example, a young Christian man to be attracted to a young Christian woman and he wants to get to know her and begin uh, the courtship process or whatever you want to call that. There's nothing sinful about that. That's God's design. Okay, if if men and women were not attracted to one another, then nobody would ever get married. There's nothing wrong with that. There is something inherently wrong and disordered and sinful about homosexuality. Heterosexuality came before the fall. Homosexuality only came after the fall. It's an inherently sinful desire. And it's not just J.D. Greer and Ed Litton who are compromising on homosexuality. Many, in, in fact, I would say, dare say almost all of those who are promoting social justice in the evangelical world are compromising on it, at least to some degree. Uh, Beth Moore is another example. Now, it's interesting, this case with Beth Moore. In her book entitled Praying God's Word that came out, I believe, in 2009, so it's it's over a decade old. In her book Praying God's Word, Beth Moore was very clear about homosexuality. I mean, she called it a, a satanic assault, uh, evil uh, sinful, she said it's inherently sinful and and uh, must be repented from. Hey, she's she was right. She was absolutely right. But uh, fast forward a decade or so, you some of you might remember that uh, back in I think it was 2019, 2018 or 19, 2019, there was an open letter uh, written to Beth Moore, and it was signed by uh, several ladies who were doctrinally sound uh, teachers, Martha Peace. Debbie Lynn Kespert, uh, Michelle Leslie, and Susan Heck. And they, am I missing someone? I'm, I'm, if I am, I'm sorry. But anyway, they um, they put this letter out for Beth Moore, an open letter asking Beth Moore some basic questions. What do you believe about homosexuality? And she would not answer the questions directly. It made a lot of news. A lot of different websites reported on it. It made a lot of news, but she would not answer the questions directly. And then someone discovered that in the Kindle version of her book, Praying God's Word, that whole section on homosexuality had been removed. It's not in the Kindle versions, just in the, you know, the old print versions, but not in the Kindle version. And so 
Um, of course, that raised a lot of eyebrows. Or why did she take this out? And so uh, things kind of came to critical mass, and she finally had to uh, explain why uh, she took that section out. Interestingly, in her blog post, she she never said that she affirms that homosexuality is a sin. She would only say that she affirms a traditional biblical sexual ethic. And then she also goes on to talk about how she was worried that she overshot. She said she, oh, no, she wasn't worried about it. She said, I overshot scripture by a mile in what she said in her book, Praying God's Word. Well, no, she didn't overshoot scripture at all. She was actually right. That she was right about what scripture said about homosexuality. And then she gives this example of how she was worried how maybe a 13-year-old girl who was struggling with her um, identity and her whatever, you know, whether she's attracted to men or, or boys or girls, and and she was so worried that uh, someone, some little girl like that, would read that passage in her book and then worry that she was... Um, less than, that she was just uh, deplorable and there's nothing, that uh, she was just a um, terrible person and there's no hope for her. And, she, and Beth Moore didn't want to come across too strongly and push someone like that away. Well, here's the thing. The most loving thing we could do for someone is to tell them the truth. Uh, Beth Moore is also good friends with Jonathan Merritt. Uh, Jonathan Merritt is a son of James Merritt, who is a pastor and former president of the SBC. And Jonathan Merritt, really, honestly, to the surprise of no one, uh, came out earlier this year out of the closet. Uh, was very open that he was he is a homosexual man. I mean, every, everybody it's kind of everybody pretty much knew this. But um, Jonathan Merritt has just heaped praise on Beth Moore. Back and forth, Beth Moore to Jonathan and Jonathan to her, just he prays on one another. In fact, here's a, a screenshot of a tweet that Jonathan Merritt put up. Jonathan Merritt writes, I'm going to say something, and I know it's theologically suspect. And if it means you need to farewell me, that's okay because I need to live my truth. Now, parenthetically, there is no such thing as your truth or my truth or Billy Bob's truth. There is only God's truth, okay? Truth is outside of all of us. It is God's truth. But anyway, I digress. He says, I no longer believe Beth Moore is a human. I think she is an angelic being having a human experience. That is high praise. Uh, Jonathan Merritt, who is a homosexual, has such... Um, affection for Beth Moore. He actually says she does, he doesn't even think she's human, that, that, that she's an angel. Friends, I, I bring this out and I point this out for, for this reason. There is no way that Jonathan Merritt would be heaping such praise on Beth Moore if Beth Moore had sat down with her friend Jonathan and said, Jonathan, I care about you. And because I care about you, I've got to tell you the truth of what God says. And if you die in your sin, if you die in your sin of homosexuality, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. You will go to hell if you die in that state. That is the very clear, unmistakable teaching from Scripture. Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 9-11. through 11. Paul writes, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. 
neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Dear friends, the Bible is very clear. If you die in the sin of homosexuality, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. You cannot be a gay Christian. Okay? There's there's no such thing. And that's one of the things that's, that's coming along this social justice train. You can be... You can be a gay Christian. And some would say, well, you can you can be a gay Christian as long as you don't act on it. The desire for something that is inherently sinful is also sinful. You cannot be a gay Christian any more than you can be a, a child molesting Christian. Our, our identity is not in our sin. As Christians, our identity is in Christ, not in our sin. And if you die in this, in any of these sins, in a habitual, unrepentant state, then you will not inherit the kingdom of God. And it's not to single out homosexuality as, as any more serious or any more difficult to be forgiven of than any other sin. That's not the point. When God grants repentance, the think of it this way, the, the back of sin is broken. As Christians, we can... We stumble into sin, but we don't swim in it. We don't relish sin. We don't enjoy sin. We don't look for opportunities to sin. We don't play with sin. When we sin as Christians, it grieves us. And if you die in a state of habitual, unrepentant sin, as a quote-unquote gay Christian or homosexual Christian, there is no such thing. You will not inherit the kingdom of God. If Beth Moore truly loved Jonathan Merritt, and if she truly loved this hypothetical 13-year-old girl that she wrote about. The most loving thing that she could do for them is to tell them the truth. That if you die in that sin, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. You will go to hell. That The, the most loving thing we can do for people is to tell them the truth. The most hateful thing we can do is to know the truth, but don't tell them. If you really want to hate somebody, do that. Know the truth. Know what Scripture plainly teaches. Don't tell them. If you really want to hate somebody, do that. Now, I want us to look, let's go back to the text. Look at what Paul says in verse 11. He says, and such were some of you. You were those things. You you were sexually immoral. You were a reviler. You were an idolater. You were a drunkard. You were a homosexual. But you're not that anymore. Such were some of you. You were those things, but you're not now. He says, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Dear friends, there is freedom in the gospel. There is freedom in the gospel. And we cannot be ashamed of the gospel. We cannot be ashamed of the gospel and not by not giving it to people who so desperately need it. The most loving thing to do for Jonathan Merritt or this hypothetical 13-year-old girl or, or anyone else is to tell them the truth. Now, there is a way to speak the truth. Paul tells us how to do it in Ephesians 4.15. We are to speak the truth in love. Uh, speaking the truth in love means just what it says. It means we are to 
Speak the truth, but just don't be a jerk about it. Speak the truth in love. Speaking the truth in love does not mean watering down the truth. It does not mean we dilute the truth. It means we speak the truth, but we speak it to people in compassion and love. But we speak it firmly and unapologetically. And I do not hate. I, no, no true Christian. I know there's a lot of people that call themselves Christians and are. No true Christian hates homosexuals or anybody else. We should love them enough to tell them the truth. Love them enough to tell them that there is freedom in Christ. That if they will repent of sin and trust Christ, then they can join the ranks of the such were some of you. The last car on our train is the entitlement car. One of the things that makes the social justice movement so very dangerous is that it portrays people as victims. It makes people believe that they are victims, that they are entitled to things. And dear friends, there is no better way to inoculate someone against their need for the gospel than to make them think that they are a victim. A friend of mine, Jim Osmond, and I were talking one day, and he said, if God were to take from me everything that I have, take away my family, my possessions, my wife, everything, and leave me to die alone in a ditch, a slow, painful death, and then send me straight to hell. He would have done me no wrong. Now that may sound harsh, but that's absolutely true. You and I deserve nothing. The whole premise, we deserve nothing but God's wrath. The whole premise of the social justice movement is that you're a victim. You're a victim of the man. You're a victim of society. You're a victim of injustice. Dear friends, let me tell you something. None of us wants true justice. Okay? None of us wants true justice because if you and I got what we deserve, we would get nothing but the wrath of God. And so there is no prosperity gospel. There is no social gospel. Anytime you add an adjective to the gospel, you've got a different gospel. And that is what that is why the apostle Paul rebuked the Corinthians so strongly in Galatians chapter 3 verse 1 he says who has bewitched you you foolish Galatians what did the Galatians do that incurred such a strong rebuke from the apostle you know what they did it's not that they denied the deity of Christ or the bodily resurrection of Christ or any of these things they didn't even deny salvation by grace through faith they just added one little thing and the one little thing that the Galatians added was circumcision and when they added that Paul rebuked them in the strongest of possible terms. And dear friends, it's not that the social justice proponents in the evangelical world are outright denying the deity of Christ or the bodily res resurrection. They're not even denying that salvation, salvation is by grace through faith. But anytime you say the gospel is salvation by grace through faith plus something, plus, in our case, social justice, Whatever follows the plus gets all of the attention. That gets all of the attention. And guess what gets left behind? Guess what gets forgotten? The gospel gets forgotten. And so as I conclude, I want to conclude with that very thing, the gospel. If you're watching this and you're not sure of where you would go when you die, please hear, hear this if you've heard nothing else. Number one, you're not a victim. You're not a victim. If you are in your sins, you are in fact an enemy of God. Has there been a time in your life when you've been convicted 
by the Holy Spirit of God that you are a sinner. You have lied. All of us have lied. Let God be true and every man a liar. You have lied. You have stolen something. You've taken something that does not belong to you. You're a blasphemer. You're an adulterer at heart at least. If you've ever looked at another person with lust, you're an adulterer. Go through the laws of God, the moral law of God. Thou shalt not lie. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not blaspheme. Thou shalt not commit adultery. All of us, have, we have done these things in both word and in deed, in thought, uh, thousands of times throughout the courses of our lives. And just like when we break laws on earth, there's a penalty to be paid. How much more so when we break the laws of God? But unlike breaking laws on earth that are temporal and the punishment is temporal, when we sin against God, we have sinned against one who is eternal. He is thrice holy and he is eternal. And because we have sinned against the one eternal God, the punishment of that sin is also eternal. And if we die in our sins, we will very rightly and very justly go to a very real place that the Bible calls hell, where the worm will not die, the fire will not be quenched. There will be wailing, weeping, gnashing of teeth. And that torment will never end. The full undiluted fury of God's wrath will be poured out day and night forever and ever. That's the bad news. That's what you deserve, dear friend. You're not a victim. You're not entitled to anything but that wrath. The only justice to which we are entitled is the justice of God, the wrath of God. And believe me, you don't want that justice. Your works will not save you. Isaiah chapter 64 says that our works are as filthy rags before a thrice holy God. Lay your works down. They will profit you nothing. That's the bad news, is that you deserve nothing but God's justice, and that is his wrath. But there is good news, and the good news of the gospel is this, is that God loves you, and God has made a way for you to escape his wrath. God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to this earth, and Jesus is one person with two natures, fully God, fully man. And Jesus lived a perfect life on this earth, never broke any of God's laws. He lived his life to the perfect pleasure of God. And then Jesus willingly laid down his life on the cross. His life was not taken. He gave it. This perfect person gave his perfect life as a perfect sacrifice to perfectly satisfy the perfect wrath of God. Jesus satisfied God's wrath, died on the cross, and then three days later bodily raised from the dead, proving himself to be who he said he was, God in human flesh. And the only way to have the wrath of God removed is to repent of sin, turn from sin, and place your trust in what Jesus did for you on the cross. And I want to say something about repentance. Genuine repentance, that genuine, that uh, initial repentance unto salvation is something granted by God. And maybe you're not sure, well, how do I know if I've repented? How do I know if I've repented enough? The Bible says that we are to examine ourselves to see if we are in the faith. Has there been a change in your life? Do you have a love for Christ? Do you have a love for his word? Do you desire to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you have a love for the brethren? Do you have a godly sorrow over sin? 
Paul describes this in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, in a godly sorrow over sin, dear ones, as opposed to a worldly sorrow, which is nothing more than a guilty conscience, and that leads to death. But a godly sorrow over sin is when we grieve over our sin. We grieve over our sin because we understand that our sin grieves God. And just as much as we should want a Savior from hell, we should want a Savior from our sin. A lot of people out there that want a Savior from hell, they want to get out of hell free card because their their conscience convicts them and they know they're sinners. But far few, fewer people truly want a Savior from their sin. If you want a Savior from hell but not a Savior from sin, then you have a Savior from neither. So do you grieve over your sin? If you're not certain in where you are with your relationship with Jesus Christ, I would encourage you to get real honest before God. Cry out to Him. Ask Him to save you. And if you come to Him in a true godly sorrow over your sin, He will save you. Jesus says, The one who comes to me I will in no wise cast out. You will, you will pass from death to life. He will save you. Okay, dear ones. Thank you very much for watching, and um, I hope that this has been helpful for you. And as I conclude, kind of the clincher here, every form of theological mischief that plagues the evangelical world, whether it's Word of Faith, New Apostolic Reformation, Prosperity Gospel, all that kind of garbage, or whether it's social justice, or, or even Roman Catholicism, what, whatever form of theological mischief plagues the, the true church, it can all be boiled down to an abandonment of Scripture's sufficiency. Sufficiency. We don't need critical race theory as a useful analytical tool. The only analytical tool we need is the Word of God. The Word of God diagnoses the problem, and the Word of God prescribes the only solution, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Okay, dear ones, until our next time together, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ the love of God and the fellowship of His Holy Spirit be with you all. Thank you for listening to Didache. We hope that you were encouraged and edified by what you just heard. If you have a question or comment for Justin, or interested in more teaching resources, or would like to have him come and preach at your church or conference, you may contact him at justinpeters.org.